Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 3. Now, as you hear me say that, you might be wondering, didn't we just do this text last week, Pastor Ben? So I'm going to do something I've not done before, and that is I'm going to preach the exact same text this week as I preached last week. And last week I sought to exposit the text to help us to understand what the text means, which I think it, it uh, is all about the worship of God. I think Daniel chapter 3 is highlighting the God's demand to be exclusively worshipped. But this week I'd like to take this text and like us to consider another topic. And so I'm not going to teach it in the same way I did last week. But I would like us to consider how we respond to unrighteous authorities who try to force us to disobey God. I think this sermon and this text here is a text and a sermon for our time. In the past few months, in the past few weeks even, I've had a number of conversations with people in our church, people in our community, about how do we respond to authorities who try to restrict us from obeying God or even try to force us to disobey God. And so I want to consider, what does the Bible teach? And honestly, as I went through Daniel chapter 3, I always seek to be faithful to the text and to preach expositionally, which means I don't preach my own ideas, I want to preach what the Bible says. But I'm telling you, Monday and Tuesday, I was thinking, boy, there's an opportunity in Daniel chapter 3. And after a number of conversations, even this week, I thought, I think this is where the Lord wants us to go. There are a number of scenarios this includes. You might be in an employment situation. You might have a boss or an employee who tries to get you to lie, maybe to a customer, or maybe they want you to fudge the numbers so they don't look so bad. Maybe they even threaten to fire you because of your personal beliefs. There could be a child in a home, and maybe they have ungodly parents. Maybe there's a particular parent that is defiling that child's conscience in some way, but that child wants to follow the Lord. There could be a student who's in school, and you have a professor or a teacher and they say you have to parrot their beliefs and you have to confess that you believe like they do in regard to God and worship. And if you don't, you're going to get a bad grade. The most obvious examples are authorities of governments who restrict Christians from obeying God. And so the question I want to answer is how do we respond? What is, how does God want us to respond to unrighteous authorities who force us or try to force us to disobey God? And I think there's a lot of confusion in our country about this. A lot of churches are, frankly, I think there's a lot of confusion in our churches about this. And actually, this is not a new thing. New thing in that churches are confused about this. If you look in the 20th century and you look at churches that were under the oppression of communism, especially in the early years, even under the oppression of Nazism in Germany, those early years, many churches were confused or were preaching confusing sermons to, to their people, and were compromising in many ways. A lot of Christians were confused and didn't know what, what they should do. How should they respond? The year was 1945. Richard Warmbrand had just endured persecution in Romania under Nazi control. During those years, he was beaten, imprisoned, and tortured for preaching the gospel. His wife's entire family had been exterminated in a German concentration camp, and now all she had was Richard. In 1945, the communists from Russia occupied Romania, and they set up the Romanian People's, quote unquote, Republic. The idea was that the people were the ones who were going to rule. Well, that was a lie. There would be a ruling class called communists, and everyone else would be under their thumb. They promised to apply the quote-unquote righteous principles of Marx and Lenin to Romania. The communists promised to eradicate 
the oppressive upper class, to lift up the lower class, to give freedom and food to all. They promised religious freedom, which all was a lie. At the end of communism, when that finally fell, 400,000 people were dead because of communism in Romania. But at the time, in 1945, the communists enlisted churches and pastors to support Stalin in this effort to apply these Marxist principles to Romania, and it worked. In the name of helping the poor and loving their society and being able to, frankly, just survive, churches and pastors and denominations pledged allegiance to the communist government. In 1945, Richard and his wife found themselves sitting in what was called a Congress of Cults or a Congress of Religions. The, the communist government invited 4,000 pastors and priests and religious leaders to, to pledge allegiance to communism. Of course, they didn't say that when they invited all these men and women and leaders to come. So here was Richard with his wife. They were gathered in this room and one by one, pastors and religious leaders got up and they pledged allegiance to Stalin, to Marxism, and to the communist government. And so here was Richard. Many pastors in that room were afraid to say something, to speak up. He was one of the lone Bible-believing pastors in a crowd of compromisers. Richard's wife and uh, he were sitting there and she leaned over to him and whispered to him, Richard, speak up and wipe the shame from the face of Christ. As each pastor got up there and pledged allegiance to this communist government, their hearts grew more and more sad and disheartened. He responded to his wife in some type of whisper or look, but that, that if he did this, he would be arrested, tortured, and possibly killed. And she whispered back, I would rather have that than a coward for a husband. And so he went up in front of that room. The room was quiet. Everyone was listening, waiting to hear what this pastor was going to say. The communists listened in anticipation to him pledging allegiance to them. And he said, my friends, we are gathered here today as the holy priesthood of God to glorify the name of Christ, not the party. Communism has made martyrs of our brothers. How can it be praised? Our duty is not to endorse earthly powers. Our duty is to glorify God, the creator, to glorify Christ, the savior who died for us on the cross. And because he did not bow and deny the Lord for the next 20 years, he faced torture and imprisonment. In fact, the end of the story is that he founded what we know today as Voice of the Martyrs. And he had a fruitful ministry in America, informing Americans to the plight of the persecuted church across the globe. Was it right for him to respond that way in front of those pastors and religious leaders and the communist government? I mean, how should we respond to authorities especially those who try to force us to disobey God. So today I want us to consider four responses to authorities who try to force Christians to disobey God or try to restrict us from obeying God. So number one, respond with biblical conviction instead of conformity or compulsion. Respond with biblical conviction. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were government officials under the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, this was not their dream job. They didn't grow up in Jerusalem and 
expect to someday serve the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar. No, they were Jewish. They, they longed to live in Jerusalem. They were in a covenant relationship with the one true God, Yahweh. But they believed that God had placed them there in the land of Babylon and that God providentially had employed them as government officials for Babylon. So from what we can tell, they, they served the king well. They fulfilled their duties well. Daniel 1.19 says, and in fact, look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 19. The Bible says, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, which are their Hebrew names, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. So here are these men. They went to Wise Man University in Babylon. They learned what they were required to learn. And not just did they learn what they were required to learn, but they excelled. They were, they were found, they were found to be 10 times better than all the other men that graduated the same year they did. They willingly stood before the king. They submitted to the king. Then when they were appointed to a government position, they accepted and served well in that position. So look in chapter 3. Go to chapter 3, verse 3. King Nebuchadnezzar commands all the government officials to come. And so what did they do? Well, they obeyed. Verse 3, and the satraps and prefects and governors the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so with all these government officials, it had to include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because they were government officials under King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they obeyed the king's order, and evidently they gathered there and stood there in obedience. So, so was it right for them to obey the king in this regard? Was it right for them to serve a heathen king like this? Well, the answer is actually yes. It wasn't just okay. God told them to. Look at the screen. You can see in Jeremiah chapter 27. Jeremiah clearly preached God's word that they were to submit to the king of Babylon. Why? Because the Lord had placed the king over them. Verse 4 says, And the Lord said, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm, I give it to whomever it seems right to me. In other words, God is saying, I'm the one who puts authorities over you. I delegate authorities. So who is the one who appoints authorities and power? It's God. Therefore, in verse 6, he says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And it, he wasn't God's servant in that he truly served God, but that God had placed him in that position of authority. In verse 8, but it if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation. So the Lord commanded the Jewish people to accept that he had appointed King Nebuchadnezzar as their authority. So therefore, because God was and is the supreme authority and he delegates authority, Therefore, they were to submit and obey that authority. We see this same instruction in the New Testament, Romans chapter 13. God is a supreme authority, and he delegates his authority, and therefore we are to submit to those delegated authorities. And so, first of all, we're going to see our first biblical conviction that they held and we are to hold, and that is because God is the supreme authority, and he delegates authority, therefore I must submit and honor the authorities he places over me. So that includes teachers and parents and government and police 
and bosses and pastors, and the list goes on and on. And so because God is the supreme authority and delegates authority, therefore I obey that authority. But also because God is the supreme authority and his laws must be obeyed above and before any human law, therefore I must disobey any law or any rule that causes me to disobey God or prevents me from obeying God. So because God is the supreme authority and his laws must be obeyed first and foremost, therefore I must disobey any law or rule that prevents me from obeying God. And so if your teacher or your boss or your government tries to force you to disobey God or to do something, frankly, that's immoral and cause you to be immoral in some way, then you must resist that and you must obey God above all. So what we see with these examples of these men is these men lived according to biblical conviction. In fact, again, go back to Daniel chapter 1. We can see really the, not the start of it necessarily, but the first time where we see this biblical conviction. Daniel 1 verse 8. Daniel is leading these men to make decisions, decisions based upon biblical conviction. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. For these Jewish men to drink that drink to eat that meat was actually to disobey God's law for them. And so they were committed, first and foremost, to obeying God, which meant the king could have or the officials could have killed them there on the spot. But they were willing to have that happen because they wanted to obey God first and foremost. Go back to chapter 3. Look at verse 4. There's this 90-foot-tall golden statue that they are to bow down to, or the king has commanded them to. Verse 4, the Bible says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded by what? King Nebuchadnezzar, right? O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bag, all these musics, all these instruments, right? Bagpipe and every kind of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And so they believe because God is the supreme authority and his laws must be obeyed above any human law, they were to disobey that law. Right? They're only to worship God. They're only to bow before him. And so this would be disobeying God. So they were going to obey God. Then look down at verse 12. Evidently they stood somewhere, didn't bow. Someone who did bow was peeking you know, during the prayer. Or they were peeking because it happens in paganism too. And Verse 12 says these guys tattled on them. Verse 12, there are certain Jews, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. Now, was that true? No, actually, it's not. That's not true. He, they actually did respect the king. They actually did follow the king. They actually did honor him. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, we're... Those two things, true? Yeah, that's true. They didn't worship their gods. They don't fall down to idols. And so what you see here is these men are responding with biblical conviction. In fact, look down in verse 16. When they stand before the king, they respond to the king, and you see this biblical conviction. Verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, our minds have already been made up. We don't need a second chance. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us. So verses 16 and 17 here show us the biblical conviction that these guys had, and that is that they were to obey and trust the Lord no matter what. No matter the opinions of the people, no matter... What the authorities said, no matter how they felt, no matter what they lost, even if they lost their own lives, they were going to follow their Lord because he was God and no one else was. 
he's God alone. The most important thing that mattered to these men was glorifying God by trusting and obeying him. And this right here, my friends, is how, how true Christians respond. This is, how, this is what Christianity should look like. We say, Jesus Christ is Lord, and therefore nothing else matters except following him. Exodus chapter 1, we see this. We see this with the midwives who are told to exterminate the babies when they're born, the baby boys. And they don't do that. Why is that? Because they feared God. They did not, did not do as the king had commanded them. In Acts chapter 5, Paul, or not Paul, Peter and John were preaching. They were told not to preach. And they responded to their authorities by saying what? That we are going to obey God rather than man. In other words, God is, God is our God, and we are to serve him and honor him first and foremost. In fact, they answered the reason why in verse 31, God exalted him, that's Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is at the right hand. He is the leader, he is the Lord, he is the Savior, and he gives repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And do you want to find a true follower of Christ? Look for those who trust Jesus Christ when times are difficult. Look for those who follow Christ when it's unpopular or when you might lose something. Following Christ is, is not just about following some kind of cultural Christianity. or It's not about following a political party. It's not that, about that at all. It's not about doing what your parents are doing or believing what they're believing. Following Jesus Christ means that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He created you. He owns you. And we are the ones who have rejected him. It's our rebellious hearts that have sinned against him. We deserve to be punished and separated from God forever. And Jesus is the one who came and gave up his rights in his life to die in our place, to be resurrected, to give us new life. And he sits the Father's right hand. He is Lord. He is Savior. And he wants to save us. And he doesn't save us by us trying to save ourselves. He saves us when we confess that we are sinners. When we deny ourselves, we, we return from our way and we trust that Jesus Christ alone is the Lord and Savior. And you know what he gives us? He gives us repentance and forgiveness. Jesus Christ alone can give repentance and forgiveness. You can't give it to yourself. Nobody else can give it to you. Only he can. And so we Give up our life for the life, for the one who gave up his life for us. And friend, if you're in here without Jesus Christ, I invite you to give up your life for Jesus Christ. To repent and turn to Jesus as your Lord. We lose our lives, we die to sell for the sake of Jesus Christ. Richard Wormbrand tells a story about how he came to Christ. He actually... Before he came to Christ, he grew up Jewish, but eventually became atheist. He actually was committed to Marxism and to following the ideas of Lenin. And so he had this really anti-God, and he really had a lot of hate in his heart. And he, had, he didn't want anything to do with God. He grew up, of course, in Romania there, and he talks about how he and his wife were together, and they just lived a, a sinful, wicked life. They didn't have a problem with going out to the, the bars and, and going and getting with other women and her getting with other men. And they just lived this very wicked, wicked life. But they didn't really care, right? Because if there's no God, there's no consequences. And so what does it really matter? And he didn't want anything to do with God. And one day they went on vacation and they went to this little village. And there was um, a Christian man who owned a, a business there. And this man... This was a German man, ironically. He was a German man, and he was praying that God would bring by a Jewish person so he could give him the gospel. He, he read in Romans how it says to the, the gospel is to go to the Jew first and the Greek. And he's like, well, I've never led a Jewish person to Christ. So, Lord, so this guy comes. Richard comes with his wife and shows up, and he's like, oh, here you are. I'm ready to lead you to Christ. He gave him a Bible, and that really struck Richard, where he really realized something, he realized that maybe, maybe there is a God. And, and deep down in his heart, he, he, he knew that 
that there was a reality outside of himself. There was a higher power. So he actually read through the scriptures, and through that, he realized that he was a sinner in need of Christ. But the struggle was this. He was Jewish. Many of the German Christians had actually persecuted him. Some of them had actually turned over their friends and family to go to concentration camps. So he hated Christians. And he, he, had, he had a lot of hate in his heart towards a lot of different people. And he knew following Christ would mean his wife, his family, and other people would turn against him. But he came to the place where he realized Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And so I give up all the opinions of people and all the things that could possibly happen. And I want to follow Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ. And from that moment on, he was committed to the Lord. And that's what Christ calls us to do. And really that path of commitment to Christ is, is a path of biblical conviction. In fact, when you think about, if you think about following Christ, think about like a path, a narrow path that Christ down. That path is led by the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of God is a lamp unto our feet. On each side of the path, though, there are ditches that we can easily fall into. One side, one ditch that we can easily fall into is the ditch of conformity. Instead of following Christ with biblical conviction, we can easily fall into the ditch of conformity. On this path, or I should, I should say this ditch, is a place of least resistance. Right? We fall into this ditch because, because we want to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We just want to survive. We want to go along. Our survival is more important than our obedience. This is a place where peer pressure is Lord, where personal acceptance is king, and we're stuck in the mire, really, of ourself. The ditch of conformity promises that you're going to have self-preservation. You're going to have comfort. In the end, those are lies. You find you're not accepted, most importantly, by God. And you find that there's no comfort in that ditch. Many times the ditch of conformity, in this ditch we make excuses for disobeying God. We actually sometimes even use scripture to justify why it's okay for us to be in this ditch and compromise and conform. Do you realize that during World War II, Hitler used the Bible in Romans chapter 13 to bend the consciences of Christians to follow him? In, from 1940 to 1945, the Nazi military occupied Norway. There was one religious leader named Sigmund, I don't know how to say his name, I'm going to guess it's Failing. He wrote a book, this is the book, actually it's in a museum over in Oslo, Norway. And he is a, was a religious leader, and when Hitler came to power, they said, okay, First, what you're going to do is you're going to tell us, you know, who's in your church and who are the pastors and who are the teachers in the schools and what's your curriculum. So they reported all that. And they said, okay, now, tell, now turn your sermons in so we can see what your sermons are and give us your curriculum so we can see that. Uh, and then they said, oh, well, maybe you should preach these sermons and maybe we're going to appoint these pastors if you don't. And so it was a, a, pro, a slow pro progress towards the communists or the, I should say the Nazis, not the communists, Nazis taking over these churches and schools. So some religious leaders stepped up and said, hey, we want to help you. And that was one of, this is this guy right here. He actually wrote this book here, and it takes Romans 13, and it encourages Christians in Norway to obey Hitler. In fact, he says this in the books. Overall, we owe Hitler and the government our obedience. And again, one of the Hitler's desires was to get as many Jews as he could in Norway, and he did this with many of them, and ship them to Germany to concentration camps. Many churches and pastors wanted to save their jobs. They wanted to save their homes. And so they excused obedience to Hitler and his evil rules and said that they were doing it in obedience to Christ. However, there were many faithful pastors and Christians. And one of the things that the Nazis said to do was, that you need to turn your sermons into us, and then eventually they said, you need to preach the sermons that we want you to preach. And so a coalition of pastors got together and said, we are not going to do that. 
we're going to preach the word of God. And they were arrested, they were deported to Germany, sent to concentration camps, and most of them never returned. The ditch of worldly conformity is an easy one for us to fall into. Obviously, that's an extreme, but you get there by step by step. And in this ditch, many of us can rationalize, well, I just have good motives, right? It's not about what I do, it's about what my heart. Like, as long as God sees my heart, it doesn't matter what I actually do. Or I need to keep this job. I need to keep my family. Or I, so I need to do this, and I need to disobey God in this area so I can have this. The other ditch we can fall into is the ditch of compulsion. This is a place of anarchy and of rebellion. Many people fall into this ditch, have a heart that says, nobody's going to tell me what to do. You know, no parent, no government, no professor, no boss. Like, who are they, you know? I'm a more spiritual person than they are. Like, they're not even a believer. I'm not going to follow an unbeliever. I'm not going to follow someone like that. I'm even smarter than them. And in general, this person chafes at anyone who tells them what to do. Many political Christians find themselves in this ditch. Many churches find themselves in this ditch. They're waving the political flags around, and they say, follow this political leader, follow this political idea. And, and in the end, some of them even call for a revolution. Throughout history, there's been Christians who have gone to wars, and some who have even gone to the extreme of killing people to force people or try to force people to follow Christian beliefs. And that's wrong, right? That's wrong. We don't use the ways of the world to accomplish the, the work of Christ. And so we, and I would say in the end of the day, those who call themselves Christian in that ditch, many of them probably aren't, especially those who go to those extremes. But by your works you shall know them. So we'll find out when we get to glory. But we must be committed to living according to biblical conviction. And biblical conviction is this. It's a commitment to follow Christ. And so first of all, it's a commitment. It's saying, I want to follow Christ. Not my own ideas, not how I feel, not what this important person says over here. It's like, Jesus Christ is my Lord. And therefore, you're following Christ in a particular area of biblical obedience. Again, the word of God is our guide. We follow the scripture. 2020 has been a difficult year for churches and for Christians across the globe. And I think we should be praying more for our Christian brothers and sisters across the globe who are being persecuted. In June, we're going to have a Sunday. We're going to dedicate it that Sunday to praying for and considering those who are persecuted. One year ago in May... The churches in California were still shut down, weren't they? Governor said, you still can't gather, you still can't meet. There were a coalition of, I don't know, probably 1,000 to 2,000 pastors in California that decided they were going to open up on May 31st and wrote a letter to the governor, um, and I was a part of that. So I was a part of that letter that we sent to the governor. We sent a letter to the uh, county of Ventura on behalf of the elders, I have my name at the bottom, but on behalf of the elders, we sent it to the county, let them know that we were going to open up on May 31st, 2020. And again, we had nothing to hide. We believed it was a biblical conviction that we should gather as God's people. And this was before the governor gave any guidelines or any freedom from his end for, to allow us to gather. And then thankfully, at, I think it was like the 29th, two or three days before, the governor released some guidelines and said, here's how you can gather and so we followed those guidelines, not all of them, but many of them, and gathered. My point is, my point is, is that we must live by biblical conviction. You might, you might ask, why are you bringing all this up now? Aren't we over this? Like, isn't this all done? Isn't like June 15th, is that the day, like we're not supposed to have anything like this ever happen again? Do you believe that? <laughs> I mean, maybe for now. But I think what we're what we're seeing and what we have seen this past year, frankly, possibly could be a taste of things to come. And now is the time for churches, now is the time for us as Christians to decide what do we believe? What do we believe the Bible teaches? And are you committed to following Jesus Christ? Are you, are you committed to following your own uh, American prosperity, your own political party? 
Are you saying Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life and I want to follow him? We must not fall into the ditch of conforming to society's messages and or follow our heart into the ditch of social rebellion. We must follow Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And so I think for for students, for for children, for citizens, for employees, all of us, we must consider what a biblical conviction is in regard to that area that we are in. So secondly, how do we respond? We respond with grace instead of rage. Look at verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. The king expected complete and absolute obedience, even in regard to how they were to worship. And when they didn't obey him, he went to his normal self, which is what? Furious rage. What does that even look like, furious rage? Is he like stomping around the tent, taking his crown, throwing it on the ground? Who knows, but he definitely had a problem, didn't he? He had a rage problem. He had an anger problem, which points to the fact that he actually had a sin problem. And I think he is a good example, though, of when when someone opposes us or oppresses us, even in some sense, we can be tempted to respond with that kind of of out-of-control anger. And we can even say we're on the Lord's side, (laughs) so we're doing it for the Lord. It doesn't really matter if it's not under the control of the Holy Spirit, it's sin. So sometimes we can be in a situation, maybe your boss wrongs you, and automatically we can think to ourselves, how do I get revenge on him? Like, I got to get him back for that. Or maybe you're a teen in your home, you don't get your way, and so you pout in anger. Even as a citizen of our country, I think we should have godly anger and should grieve for the sins of our country when we see Millions of babies who are killed in the womb. That should cause us to be angry, but not out of control anger. That anger should cause us to pray for our country, to show love to the people of our country, to the citizens around us. It should cause us to respond with grace. Notice in verse 16, the grace that is displayed by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and it's interesting how he says that. It's, it, King Nebuchadnezzar is described as being enraged, and they answered and said to the king, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Again, this is not a defiant answer. This is, we've already made up our mind. We have a biblical conviction in regard to this area. We only worship Yahweh. Verse 17, and if this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, did he speak truth to them? Did they speak truth to him, I should say? Absolutely. They spoke truth with, with grace. Verse 19, then King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Wow, he really does have an anger problem. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And so this guy was, is super ticked off. And now, pretend you don't know the end of the story, right? I mean, we, we all go, oh, yeah, it's going to be okay. But, I mean, here these guys are standing in front of this king who's flipping out. The flames are flaming out. These big, huge, hulking soldiers come over to pick them up and to throw them into this fiery furnace. And how would you be tempted to respond? I mean, you have your coworkers who just turned against you. (laughs) Now you're going to be killed. I mean, if they would have kept their mouth shut, probably wouldn't have been a big deal, right? But obviously now it is. And the king is yelling, saying that he wants you to die seven times faster than you would have, or whatever that means heating up the furnace seven times more. And, and so my point is, is that we need to consider when we have authorities who come against us and try to prevent us from obeying Christ or force us to disobey Christ, we don't respond in rage. You don't, we don't take the remote and throw it at the TV. You know, I'm never watching that station again, those dumb politicians, right? And even when we speak about our government, we still speak with grace and reverence. 
We can speak the truth with grace. And so I'm going to have us watch a video here. This is a, a pastor in, Fairview, in Calgary, Canada. Many churches up there are being fined and are being shut down for gathering. And the restrictions are, I think, about 10, maybe 15 now. People are allowed to gather at a time. This is Tim Stevens, and I don't really know much about him, but I did appreciate how he responded with grace. We'll see if we can get it going here. I'll get the sound Service. too. We let them come in either right before or right after to have a look. And we have we have nothing nothing to hide. We're not doing anything wrong, and so we have nothing to hide. Do you have a message to the city council, Jihan Carlo Cara, who assumes that a $250,000 fine would discourage you and other churches from disobeying government's will? Yeah, well, I think what we see with our city councilors and our mayor and others in government is that they don't really understand uh, Christian convictions. They don't really understand that this is a matter of, of obedience to God and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so no amount of fine, no amount of jail time is going to discourage people as they come together to worship and so it, it, it's, it's strange that they would almost in a sense lecture Christians about how they ought to behave and how they ought to worship I think there's a real misunderstanding on their part um, Christ Christ is king and so we're here to worship him and he is above every other authority what Jesus taught is that it, it profits nothing if you were to gain the whole world so you had had all this power you have all this money uh, all, all the status in the world, if you had that, but if you lost your soul, uh, you, you would have nothing. And uh, again, I don't really know much about him um, except for some things I've read online. But I love how they clapped when the authorities came in. In other words, they showed appreciation for them, the peace officers. They honored their authorities. Am I on here? Okay. They honored their authorities um, and they gathered to worship. And I love the grace, that how he responded with grace. This is a picture of him. I think it's from this past week or maybe the week before. Um, before they arrested him, he's saying goodbye to his children. And I think this right here, I don't know why it's not being talked about in our country, but I think this right here, like, we should be partnering with people like this, right? We, we don't encourage this to happen. I don't want this to happen to any person, but we should pray and support people who are saying, I want to be, live by biblical conviction, and shame on us for ignoring the Christians in our world who are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And then second, a third, we respond with courage instead of fear. Again, pretend you don't know the end of the story. And you're those guys about to be thrown into this fiery furnace. Would you be afraid? <laughs> you're about to melt in this fiery furnace. And what we see with these guys is doesn't necessarily say they weren't afraid, but it does, they, we do see their fear, or that we do see their courage. They had courage to come to the ceremony, likely knowing that they're going to be pointed out. They had courage to not bow. They had courage to stand before the king and say the truth. They had courage to live and hold fast to their biblical convictions. They had courage to enter into the fire. They're not begging for their life. Oh, please, no, okay, we, okay, God. Ethan, to get out of this. It's like we go into it in faith in the Lord and courage. Courage is, courage is devotion to obeying God no matter the consequences because you know God is with you and for you. It's obeying God no matter the consequences because you know God is for you and with you. And biblically, when you see courage and boldness in the scriptures, you see these two things together, that we believe that God is for us and God is with us. I don't have time to go through all these texts, but in Deuteronomy, he said, don't fear, God is with you. To Solomon, David said, don't fear, my God is with you. In Acts, they prayed, God is with us, therefore we're going to go out and preach the gospel. And so even here in Daniel chapter 3, look at verse 24. The king was astonished. He rose up in haste when he saw the fiery furnace, and he saw these men in there, 
And he declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, I talked about this last week, but I do believe that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And what a gift that God gave to these men, but also to King Nebuchadnezzar, to show that God was for them, and actually he was with them. Isn't that amazing to think about? Fear can be such a controlling emotion. But for Christians, we must cast off that controlling fear, and we must trust that God is for us, God is with us, and we must follow and obey him. Another story I read in one of these books about Richard Warmbrand is that they're in one of the prisons there. Many times they were in solitary confinement, but this time they were in a, with a group of other prisoners, and so there was a couple pastors there, and they started taking turns preaching. And so a pastor would get up, and he would preach the gospel to these prisoners, and, and a guard would come in in the middle of the sermon and drag this pastor out, beat him to a pulp, and then come back in, dump his body in the cell, and the pastor that was beaten to a pulp would get back up, and he would finish his sermon. And they kept doing that. Now, what gives a man and women courage to do something like that, to obey God? Because they believe God is with them and for them. And then last, we respond with faith instead of doubt. Again, these men didn't know what the end would be for them. They were trusting God. They believed that God could save their bodies. But at the end of the day, he might not. They realized that. But their faith was that God was sovereign even over that, even over their bodies possibly burning. He was sovereign even over the king. God had the power to save them. But also God had the wisdom to do whatever he wanted to do. And they were submitted to that. God, whatever you want, whatever he wants, if he doesn't save, that's okay with us. Because they also trusted that God was caring for their souls. And I think, church, this in the end is where our faith must be. We trust God is powerful enough to deliver us. So a sermon like this can be kind of a doomsday, like, oh, no, this, everything's going. Listen, God can deliver our country. God, we can see God do a miracle. You know what the miracles are in our world today? People coming to Christ. Like, that's the miracles of our world today. You know, all these people out there want to show you all the miracles they can straighten people's feet out and weird things like that. Listen, the greatest miracle that a, a person can experience is a person having their heart regenerated, coming to life by the Spirit of God as they turn in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. Christ can do a work in our country still, can he? Christ can actually cause our city to come alive in Christ and people to be regenerated. Is that possible? Can Christ save? Yes, he can save. So we pray for that. We work for that. We don't work for the destruction of our country, right? I mean, we all know that, but that's not the conclusion of this sermon. The conclusion is he can save. He can work. We should trust him in that way. And so we trust God is powerful enough to deliver in this life. But we also recognize that God is God. We are not. And so we trust his wisdom. And if he chooses not to save our country, if he chooses us to go the direction that our country is going right now, we say, God, we trust you. You're God. And in the end of the day, we might lose our homes. We might lose our jobs. We might lose our lives. But in the end, it doesn't matter because it's only for a short time anyways, isn't it? Because what truly matters is eternity. What truly matters is what God thinks and when we meet him and what he says. And what we all as Christians are, are looking forward to is that day when we stand before Christ and he says to us, well done, my good and faithful servant, you have been faithful in a few things. Now enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the day that we look forward to. And for these men, God displayed his power, his wisdom. He displayed that he alone can save. I just have to read this. Go look at verse 27. Because we got to see the, the awesome work of God here. Middle of verse 27 says, The fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. Now, come on, do you believe that's true? 
oh, this is some story in the Old Testament, right? Someone, no. Do we believe that God has the power to do something like that? And I don't just take, take a pause, and we look at that right there, and we can say, yeah, I do believe that. I do believe that. Do you believe he can save people? It's actually a, pretty, it's actually a bigger miracle to take a person who's a, a wicked sinner like me and you and change our heart to love God and love people. The hair of their heads was not, was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins. It's not... God's command, just so you know, this is still an unregenerate king. But notice what he recognizes at the very end of that verse. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. There's one God, and only he can save. Only he does that which is supernatural. And so, church, we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord, and we trust him for the results. And sometimes God saves in this earth not necessarily like this, but in amazing ways like this. And sometimes he doesn't. I mean, I, I imagine when we get to heaven, there's going to be there's going to be thousands and millions of people in stories that we've never heard about. Many pastors and Christians and business leaders and people who lost their lives and lost their businesses. There's no one ever wrote a book and took a picture of them and put it on a TV screen for their congregations, right? But we're going to go to heaven. We're going to celebrate Christ. Like, wow, Christ, look what you've done. And someone's going to tell their story. We're like, wow, you did that in their life, Lord? That's pretty awesome. That's pretty great, even if it meant they lost everything. And so the question I think we need to ask ourselves as Christians and as a church is, are we living according to biblical conviction? You know, are you a student of the word? You say, I, wanna, I want my life to follow God's word and I want to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Are you controlled by fear? Are you controlled by fear of the future? Oh no, I'm watching the stock market. What's going to happen here? And, and are you controlled by the fear of other people's opinions? What are they going to think about me if this happens? And if I do this? Or what if I lose this or that? Are you controlled by God? Convinced that he's with you. He's for you. And so you can respond Therefore, with courage. And do you respond with faith? Do you respond with faith, trusting that God is working in your life? And therefore, what do you do when you respond with faith? You pray. And you praise God, you thank God, and you petition God. And in the end of the day, you yield to God. He is our Lord. He is Lord of our world, of our country, of our city, it's Lord of our lives. So we trust in him. Let's pray. I'm going to ask our music team to come on up. And as you sit in your seat there, I'm going to ask you to speak to the Lord and to ask him to help you consider what we talked about this morning. Christian, Church, we need to consider, are we living according to biblical convictions? And that's probably a question you should ask the Lord. Lord, show me the areas of my life that I'm bending my conscience to the will of others or to my own feelings and desires instead of bending my will to the Bible and to the Lord. And ask the Lord to show you where you're controlled by fear instead of courage that God is with you and asking the Lord to give you faith to trust him more. And if you're in here without Christ, I pray that the Lord is working in your heart and that you'll surrender to him and trust him today. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we believe that you are God and we are not.
and therefore we want to follow you. We trust you. We trust your wisdom. You know what is best for us. We trust your power. You have saved us. We trust your love. You care for us. And so, Lord, we, we pray to you because we trust you. And I pray for our church as we go through this year, and Lord willing, unless the Lord lets you come back as we go through the next few years, I pray that you will help us to be faithful and obedient to you. That's what truly matters. And Lord, we do ask for your grace and mercy upon this, our country, and our state of California, and our city of Simi Valley. We believe, Lord, that you can shine the light of the glorious gospel of Christ into the hearts of people, and you can awaken souls, and you can show them their need for Christ, and they, you can regenerate souls. And so, Lord, we ask for that. Please do that saving work. You can deliver. We trust that. We pray for that. In the end, we submit to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The last song we're going to sing is called A Christian's Daily Prayer. And if you don't know the song, of course, it's going to be on the screen up here. If you're a person that likes to follow musical notes, it's in here. It says, as, as, as morning dawns and day awakes, to you I bring my need. O gracious God, my source of strength, in you I live and breathe. Each hour is yours by wisdom planned. Each deed empowered by sovereign hands. Renew my spirit. Help me stand. Be glorified today. And the true heart's cry of a Christian is this. I want Christ to be glorified. Let's stand and sing.
All God's people said.